Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscalia, professor of medicine at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm pleased to have Dr. Sam Krishna, who is professor of medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And he is a specialist in pancreatic disorders and advanced endoscopy. And he's also the director of clinical research in the division of gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition at Ohio State. Sam is an expert in pancreatic cystic lesions, and that is our topic for this month's podcast. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here and participate in this ASG podcast. Terrific. So um, I want to ask you, I have lots of questions to ask you about uh, the management of pancreatic cysts. And um, uh, some of them are a little more mundane and routine, and some of them may be a little bit more nitty gritty. So um, I'd like to first uh, talk to you a little bit about, you know, receiving a referral for pancreatic cystic lesions. You're a pancreatic specialist, we know, um, although not every GI provider is. And my question is, is, um, you know, when one gets a referral or receives a referral for a pancreatic cyst, do we always need to move on to an endoscopic ultrasound? Um, When do we do that? Why do we do that? If you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, as a referral center, we do not do EUS in every patient referred for the evaluation of pancreatic cyst. But then EUS uh, is important in the management. EUS has two aspects. One is the imaging aspect itself, and the second is the fine needle aspiration and sending cis fluid for analysis. So some key principles or key aspects of EUS are that just by imaging itself, it's been shown in studies that 65% of the time, the imaging from EUS alone can differentiate a malignant from benign cyst. Of course, this goes into the morphology of the cyst, this is similar to imaging with MRI or a CT, CT with pancreatic protocol, to be specific. Further, EUS is more accurate for detecting and characterizing a mural nodule within a cyst. Now, of course, we are talking about uh, cysts which are larger than two centimeters, uh, that's in clinical practice. And to be more specific, EUS can differentiate a mural nodule from a mucinous globule. Uh, sometimes MRI reports may uh, say that there is uh, an intracystic component and EUS can certainly differentiate uh, with a decent level of confidence that this is, whether this is a mucinous globule or a true mural nodule. Now, studies have also shown that there is incremental value of adding EUS to MRI or CT imaging in the, not just the classification of cysts into mucinous and non-mucinous cysts, but also that uh, if you do diagnose a mucinous cyst such as IPMN, then you can potentially uh, find cysts with advanced neoplasia 
advanced neoplasia means presence of high-grade dysplasia or adenocarcinoma. Now, the other aspect of EUS, which I uh, briefly alluded to, was the fine needle aspiration or cis-fluid analysis. And it's a standard practice uh, when we do EUS in uh, many of the cystic lesions. So, of course, you know, sending this fluid for CEA, amylase, uh, cytology, and more recently, cis-fluid glucose all have added value. Now, so- this is kind of... Yeah. Let me just interrupt you for a minute. That, that's, that's helpful. But let me, let me, before we talk a little bit about the FNA part and the cis fluid analysis, and um, you mentioned a lot of, of, of important stuff in your answer there about morphology and the additive benefit of, of using endoscopic ultrasound. But, you know, let me, let me put an example in front of you. Uh, you have a patient who's referred to you say either by a primary care physician or another gastroenterologist who's not a pancreas specialist. And the CT scan um, was then uh, followed up with an MRI, MRCP. That study shows a 1.9 centimeter cystic lesion with some septations. Um, There's a couple other small scattered sub-centimeter cystic lesions throughout the pancreas. The pancreatic duct is not dilated. And as far as we can tell on this MRI, MRCP, there are no features of that cyst that we consider to be high risk. In other words, there is not um, a nodule or a possible nodule. Um, There is not a solid component to it. There is none of the things that cause for alarm. So I'll ask you again, in that scenario, what is the trigger for endoscopic ultrasound? Uh, what is it about a CT or an MRI that should prompt us to do an EUS? Or should we be doing it in every single patient that has a CT slash MRI that has pancreatic cystic lesions? So first off, we shouldn't uh, consider EUS in every patient who has had a CT or MRI, specifically if um, the CT or MRI is uh, done at a center where you have um, good radiologists who read these scans. Um, that, that's a critical aspect. Now, uh, in clinical practice at referral centers, uh, we get patients with uh, outside CT or MRI, and many a times they are suboptimal. Uh, under these situations, we may elect to either repeat the MRI, MRCP, or proceed with EUS because EUS is complementary to MRI and uh, RCT, pancreatic protocol. Now, just going back to the question you asked, okay, patient has had a CT or MRI and then it's referred to you and then the CT uh, MRI report is uh, read by a uh, trustworthy radiologist. And uh, if, you, if the patient has recent acute pancreatitis uh, where the etiological workup is unknown, certainly, and if the patient is you know, more than 50, 55, 60 years old, I would consider EUS in addition. Uh, or if there's a significant family history of pancre- pancreatic cancer, that is two or more first-degree relatives, uh, or if the uh, patient is classified as a high-risk patient for pancreatic cancer based on uh, prior genetic evaluation, certainly I would consider EUS. Now, EUS has higher uh, accuracy to detect certain subtle features, which we just uh, discussed about mural nodules, uh, wall thickness. Uh, so uh, if your clinical suspicion and your clinical assessment, if you think that this would alter management, I would certainly add EUS Specifically, if the cyst is on that borderline gray zone of 1.9 centimeter, centimeters, you know, about two centimeters, I would be thinking of EUS. And lastly, um, if you do draw a CA99 and it's elevated, uh, I would consider EUS. So also, if you have serial imaging and then the cyst has grown in size, although it has just 
reached 1.8, 1.9. But if you see that growth, I would add EUS to the evaluation. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. So, uh, but just to clarify for our listeners, in terms of a size criteria, is there a size that, in your practice, in your experience, for the most part, uh, you know, uh, sort of translates into I'm going to be doing an EUS uh, and likely a needle aspiration, but at least I'm going to be doing an EUS and that type of cyst. What size would that be? Practically, for me, two centimeters is a good cutoff size after which I consider EUS. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe the guidelines also are sort of in line with this in terms of the practice guidelines in terms of when to prompt for for EUS. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's if you don't mind, I'd like to continue to talk a little bit about um, surveillance and following these cysts, both with EUS and cross sectional imaging. Um, uh Many believe that uh, when uh, a patient is referred to them um, and the cyst is sort of EUS worthy, so to speak, let's say size of two or 2.4 centimeters or something like that. Going forward, um, how, should we, how should we surveil these cysts? Um, is there a need, if the cyst isn't changing, if there's, as you mentioned, no major size changes or morphological changes, you know, what is your best uh, recommendation or what do you do for ongoing surveillance? Do you, how do you, what do you utilize? So uh, I do, um, uh, I'm consistent with the guideline recommendations about uh, preferring MRI or preference for MRI over CT. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a patient has had the basic evaluation with MRI and EUS, my next imaging of choice will be MRI over a CT scan. Mm-hmm. And uh, although the guidelines sometimes say that you have to alternate MRI and EUS for cysts, which are say larger than two and a half, three centimeters, um, I have a preference of using uh, sequential MRIs, at least two or three, and only add EUS if the MRI has shown some changes. Now. MRI is preferred, uh, it's a preferred imaging modality because it has obviously greater accuracy in visualizing the main pancreatic duct, the ductal features, and of course, the communication of the duct with the cystic lesion. Right. Moreover, it's uh, accurate for characterizing the intracystic features uh, of mural nodularity and wall thickness that's in comparison to the CT. And further, it can also pick up septal enhancement, uh, especially so in multi-cystic lesions such as serocystadenomas. Now, yeah. one thing which is uh, MRI is kind of inferior to CT is, of course, picking up uh, calcification. And further, which you experience in clinical practice is that elderly patients may have difficult time with holding their breath, uh, causing some motion artifacts. Yeah. So in so, some circumstances, yeah. Yeah, so so actually, I mean, you're right. I mean, when you look at these scans, right? I mean, if you if you if you have a patient with a small cystic lesion, um, and you actually look at a contrast CT scan, right? You look at the pancreas, and then you look at an MRI, MRCP at the same cyst. I mean, the the amount of information, as you said perfectly, you know, you just it's just so much better detail with an MRI. Half the time, in many cases, it may be even difficult to even see a cyst that's under a, a centimeter or a centimeter and a half or something on a yes. on a, a CT scan. So I. Um, 
so that brings me to another related topic. Um, you know, uh, in, in my institution, my, my radiologists that I work with, um, you know, have said to me that, um, you know, if you have a baseline surveillance MRI, MRCP, and you're continuing to follow that cyst with, with that study, that contrast is not needed. They can simply, you know, continue to follow with, with without contrast. I'm just wondering if, if you get, if you hear the same, if you're doing that, are you always doing these with contrast? And also, um, what are your thoughts on the accuracy of open MRI? Because you bring up the point about holding your breath and more, and I'm thinking of claustrophobia and things like that. These are conversations that I have with my patients. So if you could comment on contrast and, and whether an open MRI is sufficient. Interestingly, uh, I had the same conversations with my radiologist over the last <laughs> few years. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, one thing which is uh, clear to me is that um, if the cyst is less than one centimeter, uh, and if you are surveying this small cyst, um, and uh, let's kind of take out uh, IPMNs from this picture, and I'll come back to that as to why. Um, so if you just one single solid cyst less than one centimeter, you want to repeat MRI in three years, it's okay to get MRI without contrast. That's just having the MRCP sequences. Uh, but uh, one major concern with IPMNs is that, uh, especially they are multifocal, and it's considered to have a neoplastic field defect, meaning that uh, when somebody has multiple side bench IPMNs, they're considered to have diffusely unstable ductal epithelium with the kind of a susceptibility for malignant degeneration. Uh, while one focal area may give rise to IPMN, it is believed that another focal area may straight go to pancreatic adenocarcinoma, ductal adenocarcinoma. So here, MRI with contrast is critical in characterizing the synchronous solid pancreatic uh, solid uh, ductal cancers. That's regardless of the size of IPMN. Now, most of the research comes from Asian studies uh, showing almost a six to 7% incidence of um, ductal adenocarcinomas in patients with multiple IPMNs. So that's the reason in IPMNs, we probably had to kind of uh, stay with MRI, MRCP with uh, contrast. That, that's very interesting what you mentioned about field effect. And I think, and uh, it's my understanding that, you know, it, uh, a lot of patients when we, you know, they're obviously worried that their cyst is going to undergo malignant transformation. And the small number of patients that we follow who's, who actually, you know, who are in a, surve a close surveillance program and you're following them on a regular basis who then go on to develop pancreatic cancer, which is a, a very small number of patients. It's my understanding and in my own personal anecdotal experience that, that it's actually coming from a different part of the gland, um, yep. not, not the actual cysts that we've been worried about for the past eight years that we've been following them. Um, and exactly. I think, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. And, and patients, when you talk to patients about that, they're sort of just like dumbfounded um, yeah. by this. But I think, you know, what you bring up about this topic of a feel of effect and the importance of looking at the entire gland and parenchyma, et cetera. And I think that's, that's something that I'm going to use when I talk to patients more about it. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, though, like, you know, for the last three or four years, I've not had a single patient. And just in the last two weeks, I had two patients with synchronous uh, ductal adenocarcinomas uh, separate from the site of the IPMN. That, that's and, amazing. And, and regarding the open MRI, the radiologists do say that there is a little decrease in the re resolution compared mm -hmm. to a closed MRI, but, you know, compared to claustrophobia and if the patient can, if we do have an open MRI, if the patient has uh, severe claustrophobia, I would rather choose the open MRI. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I wanna just pause for a minute and uh, take a second to thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, uh, for supporting this ASGE podcast series. Um, Cook has always been an innovator in, in the advancement of, of GI endoscopy, and we're grateful for them uh, in support of the series. So thank you, Cook. Um, great, Sam. I, this has been great. I want to keep talking a little bit about um, cysts and now uh, sort of focus more on you know, the patients that uh, come to you in which you decide to do an EUS exam and needle uh, aspirate a cystic lesion. Um, what are the most important tests that we should be sending for on any cyst that we decide to do an FNA of? Sure. So I just want to, uh, again, take a little pause and uh, define what an indeterminate cyst is. Here okay. is where is, there's a cyst you cannot classify either as mucinous or non-mucinous. That's like you're doing EUS, you've seen the morphology, and you cannot classify mucinous or non-mucinous. And if you do think it is non-mucinous, then you cannot really say whether this is a pseudocystadenoma or a cystic neuroendocrine tumor or in the rare instance, a solid pseudopapillary neoplasm. So here is where FNA is indicated where you know that it will alter the management. Uh, collectively, cis fluid CA cytology amylase are the traditional ones and off late cis fluid glucose has gained a lot of prominence. Right. And studies have shown that when you combine cis fluid CA and glucose, the accuracy for classifying cysts as mucinous and non-mucinous goes up to 90%. And further, it's not expensive. So in the big picture, it's going to be very economical to add cyst fluid glucose to the routine evaluation of cystic lesions, especially the fine needle aspiration. Yeah, now, uh, you, cytology... You know, it, this, this is amazing to me because I know, I, I, I see that the glucose has gained steam here in the last couple of years, some nice papers put out by our colleagues. And it's so, it's so shocking to me because like, you know, we've been needling <laughs> pancreatic cysts for, you know, I don't know, 20 years now. And glucose is right in our finger, is right there. It's so easy to send. And we haven't been using it um, to our yeah. advantage in terms of mucinous versus non-mucinous. So I just, I think that's amazing. So there's one caveat with glucose. Um, when I started doing it, um, you got to be careful uh, that you, you cannot use your electronic uh, medical uh, system, ordering system to just say body fluids and say add pancreatic cyst fluid. You have to, you need to actually talk with your lab director and mm -hmm. they need to uh, do a validation test, uh, at least 10 samples. Uh, and then um, it has to be formally added to your EMR so that you can order it. So there's a process to it. And uh, the, the finger stick glucose or uh, the bedside glucose should not be done. Although the studies have looked at it because of the economical model, they tend to miss out on the lower values uh, compared to the lab glucose. So just just that. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so you talked about CEA and glucose and using them in conjunction uh, to try to differentiate between mucinous, non-mucinous. Um, of course, we send our sample off to cytopathology to uh, if there's, you know, if we're able to get adequate cellular yield um, with just an FNA for them to look at the actual cells and we're looking at amylase, et cetera. Where do we stand with DNA molecular analysis uh, right now with cystic lesions? Sure. So uh, DNA molecular analysis, otherwise uh, next generation, with next generation sequencing analysis or what we call as NGS, has a very high specificity for mucinous lesions, that's IPMNs and mucinous cystic neoplasms. Amongst the mucinous cystic neoplasms, the sensitivity for IPMNs is much higher than mucinous cystic uh, neoplasms. Uh, so IPMNs tend to do better 
because the epithelium is present all through the cyst compared to MCN where the epithelium can be patchy because of atrophic changes. NGS also has the potential to pick up advanced neoplasia in these mesonocystic lesions. So the recommendation to send NGS depends on two big things, uh, availability for a center, whether they can send it, and second, the associated costs and if insurance can cover it. Uh, I can talk about our experience. We started a collaboration with the genomic pathologists in the Department of Pathology, and we were able to really bring the cost down to less than $300. So that's the reason um, we send it uh, with every fluid which goes out from the pancreatic cyst, along with the routine tests of CEA glucose and cytology. Uh, the results from NGS certainly augment the overall diagnostic accuracy, especially if the results from CEA glucose or cytology remains equivocal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the strength of NGS. But are, are you using the information to simply better define whether a cyst is mucinous or not? Or are you using it beyond that in terms of, you know, uh, commercially what I see being done is, you know, trying to prognosticate and risk assess the cyst um, and sort of give a prediction of malignant transformation, which I see they do on these reports. I mean, how are you actually using the information, whether you do it at, at home or, or outside? So uh, we are using it for both those purposes. Okay. Uh, one is to, of course, diagnose mucinous and non mucinous but uh, one point to note is that the sensitivity of NGS to pick up the VHL mutations to diagnose serious adenoma is low. Although the single center experience from uh, UPMC uh, shows a pretty high accuracy, uh, but their, their, uh, their method of NGS is much more refined than what's generally practiced. Now, as far as risk stratification, uh, again, there are certain mutations which have been identified to show high-risk mucinocystic lesions. And if they are identified, we use that in decision-making process during pancreatic multidisciplinary tumor board meetings. Okay, that makes sense. Um, one of the things that has uh, come out over the last couple of years that I think some people are making it more a part of their cyst management practice and some are, and some are not, which is um, relatively straightforward. And I, I say that, you know, compared to advanced imaging within the cyst, which we're going to touch upon like needle-based um, confocal laser and a microscopy in which there's obviously a huge learning curve involved in that. Um, and, but how about what I'm referring to, which is through the needle uh, microbiopsy. So, you know, you take a large, say 19 gauge needle, right? Put it into the cyst cavity and then take a small forceps through the needle and actually sample the wall of the cyst for histopathological diagnosis. Should we be doing this? Is this useful? Does this get us more information? What do you think? So I'm going to talk briefly about both this uh, new advanced diagnostic techniques. U.S. confocal endomicroscopy. Again, the application of that is when you think as a clinician, it will alter the management of the cystic lesion. Uh, as you mentioned, it has to be performed by trained endosonographers who have uh, who are trying to, one, uh, obtain good quality imaging, and two, to make sense of what they're seeing when they do the endomicroscopy. Uh, what we have shown that is that when you combine with NGS, diagnostic evaluation of uh, so-called indeterminate cysts is fully optimized, as in, in our clinical practice, it's highly unlikely we miss, uh, we miss the diagnosis of any type of cystic lesion which is referred to us. Uh, and moreover, in research studies, we have shown from our center that endomicroscopy can um, 
not only diagnose the cyst type, but also potentially risk stratify IPMN lesions based on the degree of dysplasia. Now, EUS guided through the needle microbiopsy can also be applied for evaluating indeterminate cysts. Again, back to the picture where the clinician thinks that it will change management of the uh, patient. Now, through the needle biopsy has been shown to have high accuracy for IPMNs and pseudocyst adenomas. The diagnostic accuracy depends on the tissue yield. And there is a meta-analysis which has shown that you at least require three different passes through the needle and obtaining to get an optimal diagnostic tissue sample. Um, amongst all uh, advanced diagnostics for the evaluation of pancreatic cystic lesions, unfortunately, though, US-guided uh, microbiopsy is reported to have the highest frequency of adverse events. Mm. The utilization of uh, US microbiopsy is kind of user or center-specific uh, with their individual experience. Some have re reported low adverse events and some have reported a higher frequency of adverse events. In fact, uh, there is one multi-center study from Europe, which has shown uh, acute pancreatitis leading to mortality as well. So there are extremes in terms of adverse events. So I would say if somebody is comfortable and has a low risk of adverse events, they can, if they're confident about using it, they should use it to diagnose depending on what's available at their yeah. center. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes me somewhat apprehensive about using it is, um, you know, as you said, um, really increasing the risk of acute pancreatitis above and beyond the usual one to two percent chance when you do a needle biopsy. And then I think other things that come to mind would be, you know, intracystic bleeding um, and and possible leakage and pseudocyst formation. So, um, yeah, that 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 makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I want to uh, talk about the future and of of cyst management. and And I think it's, you know, a lot of patients say to me when I see them for pancreatic cysts, well, well, first, right, right. The, mo the first thing they say to you is, can't you just get rid of it? You know, and we kind of explain to them about how typically, um, if you're going to get rid of it, so to speak, it's a surgical resection, and why. But but that brings up the topic of cyst ablation, and um, you know, as you know, there have been studies for years um, that have have looked at um, alcohol and then other drugs uh, used uh, to inject um, into the cyst um, and wash it, lavage its surface with and, and pull it out. So, you know, and to ablate the, the wall, the cyst. So where are we with that? Is this going anywhere? I mean, it hasn't really become part of mainstream therapy and practice. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Sure. So um, for many of the therapeutic endoscopists who evaluate cysts are, are in the or you know, conducting studies in cyst ablation, one of their long-term personal goals would be to see, you know, to see what happened to esophagus. If you take esophagus 20 years ago, right. or when I did med school, high-grade dysplasia was surgery. Surgery, right. Right. So now it has completely changed. Yeah. So uh, can, we, can we reach that stage with pancreatic cysts? Um, the surgeons will not like us for that, but, you know, <laughs> can, can we reach it? So... Multiple studies have been done. Um, briefly, though, uh, alcohol as a single agent um, has been, it's kind of has gone out of favor because of the risk of acute pancreatitis. The complete resolution rate with alcohol across the studies is about 30 to 35%. Mm -hmm. Then uh, investigators started combining alcohol with uh, chemotherapy agents such as paclitaxel and gemcitabine 
again, the risk of pancreatitis continued to be high, mainly because of alcohol. Then they switched over to just uh, chemotherapy with paclitaxel or other agents. Overall, uh, studies have shown that you can reach complete resolution in about 50 to 65% of patients. And uh, we have looked at a modified version of paclitaxel, which is uh, kind of a large molecule version. And in a, in a, in a multi-center study, we have shown uh, that uh, one is, it's mainly the safety and efficacy. So the safety that there was not a single episode of acute pancreatitis, only in about 19 patients. But further, this large molecule version of paclitaxel was retained in the cyst at the end of three months, uh, showing a sustained action. So that's still an ongoing process. Um, now, we are still looking forward to larger multi-center studies involving chemotherapy drugs such as paclitaxel before we can consider this in you know, appropriate clinical application. Uh, one new thing is, of course, US, uh, is, is US-guided radiofrequency ablation. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a, a needle, the tip deliver, delivers the RFA to the cyst epithelium. Uh, just in the last two months, uh, which I consider personally a great study from uh, Europe, uh, from France, it's a multi-center study. These investigators um, selected about 17 patients. They had a one-year follow-up study, which was published three years back. And they followed these patients all the way. And uh, just after about three years of follow-up, they showed the data, about 15 patients exclusively with branched duct IPMN. At the end of three years, six of the 15 had complete resolution uh, of the IPMN lesions. Uh, this is with EUS RFA. So this is another ablative uh, technique, technique which can be used and it has to be studied in multicentral studies. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, I've, I've read about and seen, you know, EUS RFA, uh, usually it, from what I've seen, uh, it's been utilized in more solid lesions like a neuroendocrine tumor, um, which it seems like a great application for it. You know, you have these smaller lesions, uh, which are mostly solid that you can, uh, that, that people are panicked about and you need to be, you know, watched carefully. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's some data on adenocarcinoma as a sort of adjunctive therapy, but um, I wasn't aware that they were looking at this with cystic lesion. So that's, that's very interesting. So, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I, it would be fascinating to get to a point in time in our career in which, you know, the same thing happens for pre-malignant cystic lesions as it has for uh, pre-malignant, you know, conditions related to Barrett's esophagus. So that would be amazing. Sama, this has been great. Um, very informative. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm, I'm a pancreas uh, EUS cis person. So um, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. And uh, also thank ACG for, you know, opening this podcast series for all the listeners. Yeah. Thank you, ASG. Thank you, uh, Cook Medical once again. And uh, I look forward to uh, uh, seeing you all on our next podcast next month. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.